Wednesday webinar talking about a topic, different topic each week. Um, this week, we are going to be chatting about writing strong offers. Karina um, is our internal sales agent. She speaks with a lot of you that are reaching out to us for um, next step advice. Hey, I'm looking at a house. What's my next step? Um, so she's catching a lot of questions on the front end. Yep. Say? Yeah, a lot. So, um, so we're trying to keep note of them because we know when one person asks a question, um, it just needs an answer. When a bunch of people ask the same question, we need to really answer it, right? Um, so we want to make sure we've got uh, good coverage on uh, on the questions you have at this point because there's a lot of information floating around out there. Um, mm -hmm. Good and bad information, I think. I, I hear a lot of fear right now. Yes. Fair? Yeah. Lots of fear. I hear a lot of um, just uh, maybe some false expectations, uh, you know, concerns about what's going on in the market, what's going on with the uh, the overall health of the market, um, what, how am I ever going to buy? That's one of the ones we hear about, just because prices have have taken such a run. Uh, how am I ever going to compete? And so that's what we want to address today is the competition component. So when you've decided to buy, you've gone through the pre approval process. We started the search. How do we get you to the finish line? How do we actually get something under contract? So let's hit it. Yeah, let's get straight into it. I really like this house. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's priced at, let's say, $500,000. Um, and I my pre-approval was four fifty. dollars Just that up. Okay. Um, what do I do? Well... Um, so I guess understanding these are some of the questions we want to you know understand right is everybody get a 450 approval everybody likes the 500 dollars in our house it's just the nature of the game right we always want the thing that's just out of reach um, couple components here pre-approvals are not necessarily hard set fast numbers because there's a lot of assumptions built in there if they have all your financials they're approving you for the cost of owning that home. Um, that is going to change in an area that has high HOAs versus an area that doesn't. It's going to change in an area that um, has higher taxes versus other areas. It's going to change if you're in a condo versus a single family home, right? The qualification number is going to has the ability to kind of pivot. So I'd say that's first. Let's just get a handle on that and talk to our lender, understand what our, you know, depending on some of these scenarios, how, how, how much we can stretch. Right. Um, and, and, then, too. and then a lot of people come to the table saying, hey, I don't want to go higher than 450. Now they start to assess the market and they say, well, I really need to be closer to five to something I really want. Well, let's go back to the drawing board before we start getting really excited about, you know, going to five and stretching our budget. Let's understand, um, you know, the cost of, of making that change. So I like to I like to always say, let's go back back to the table and make this decision before we're making an emotional decision out there on the home search front. So that makes sense? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there may be some flexibility in, in what affordability is because really we're looking for what the monthly total cost is. Yeah. So say I was pre-approved for 600000 still want this $500,000 okay. house. Walk me through the steps of, okay, let's make an offer on this house. Okay. So again, this is one of the things we want to have a grip on before we're standing in the home, right? So, so there, there's always a key difference from buyers we're working with that have had a 
a time frame of build up, getting to the point of writing an offer, right? We had a, we had a meeting, we had a bunch of these conversations and now we found the house versus the person that calls us and says, Hey, I want to go see this house. And now we're trying to get all of our ducks in a row to write the offer. Mm -hmm. um, really first step. So let's just either one of these cases, first step, we get in the house, we're going to do a quick assessment on it. We want to under determine what, regardless of what it's listed for or what we're approved for, what do we think the home is worth on the market, right? And that's where we go to that. We go look for three, four, five, six comps um, in the area that have sold recently. So the best comp, I always think the best comp is the same house that sold yesterday that usually doesn't exist. That's just like appraisal 101, that would be the perfect comp because that's given us the clearest picture of what this thing has sold for on the market. Um, so we're using other comps to kind of help come to a conclusion of what we think this is worth. So the way we do that is let's say the neighboring house sold, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago and it's 300 square feet bigger. So we're going to adjust down for that 300 square feet. Let's say the same house sold down the street and had a pool and this one doesn't have a pool. We're going to adjust for the value of that pool. All of these things are giving us a pretty clear picture if they're recent sales on what, uh, on what the value should be. So that's the first thing I always say a listing price can be high or low. And that's one thing you've got to understand in this market. Things are priced. Um, uh, it's a price where the seller is willing to accept the contract. However, the market is going to determine where that's going to land. Right. And we're playing and playing a role in that market. So we're saying, Hey, you price it at 500. I see one up the street that's in worse condition that sold for 530 last week. Yeah. Okay. We can start to get an understanding that hey, this is this is going to be a hot ticket. Like unless there's some fact or feature that is a deterrent, right? So you have the same home, this one sits in it, but it butts like a really busy street or something, right? That, that'd be a negative that may bring that value down. Yeah. But aside from something like that, we want to have a clear picture and say, hey, the other one's over 5:30. The market's actually been moving in a positive direction. Man, where do we think this thing can land, right? The other component I think is very important, and, and I preach this to all of our buyers, is what is the house worth to you? Yeah. And that's always a different story, too. Um, and here's what I mean by that. You absolutely have to have a pool, right? You've, you've made it clear you have to have a pool. I want a house with a pool. So either you're buying a house with a pool or you're putting a pool in. Putting the pool in is going to cost you $60,000, $70,000 right now in eight months of time. So if this house doesn't have a pool and it is $500,000 and so ipso facto, you're going to go make it 570 by adding the pool. Um, what is it worth to you if you've got to put in that pool? Do you have to be at a certain price to get the pool or would it be make more sense for you to wait and find something with a pool? Now, right. if the one with a pool sold for 600, this may be a really good investment. Right. It's going to be a pain in the butt. It takes time. You got to do the hiring and bringing people in and waiting for the for the process to go through. But it may make sense to you to go that route and go through those efforts because the market has shown that there's upside by adding that feature. Um, so what is it worth to you? I think that's always a, an important factor. If you're going to have to rip things out, go through all this headache and it, it's just not something that's in your wheelhouse and there's something else that you can consider, the one that's more like what you're looking for is gonna be more valuable to you than this one that you've gotta make all those adjustments on. So just, uh, that's a, another like little subtle filter I like to run it through. It's just talking through it yourself. Yeah. Um, 
The other component, and we see this right now, is um, it might be worth more to somebody else. We might have somebody this is absolutely perfect for. They're living in a hotel with their family. Their mm -hmm. stuff's in storage. You know, the, their, their whole life is like in freak out mode because they, and so they may be willing to pay a price that you are not. And, and we can't, we can't prevent that. We just got to understand that. So that's right now we're seeing there's just, just a different level of competition. So um, what's up, Steve? Thanks for jumping on, man. All right. Next question. So you're talking about worth. Um, I wasn't in real estate before this type of market. So I know it's much more of a buyer's market and you can kind of, when you're writing an offer, you can kind of play with it with the sellers, but now it's a seller's market. So it's kind of up to the seller. Right. Um, can you talk about the difference between the two markets and kind of writing offers that are worth it to you, but also, you know, you want the buyer or not the buyers, the seller's attention. So just to kind of break down seller's market versus buyer's market, generally speaking, a seller's market has about six months of inventory, five to six months of inventory, or uh, I'm sorry, that'd be a balanced market, five okay. to six months of inventory mm -hmm. where there's inventory um, available for a buyer to go shop around and choose a home. The sellers know their home's going to sell. It's just a, you know, maybe a matter of time right. or getting more strategic on price. Um, beyond that five to six months, it becomes a buyer's market because mm -hmm. there's a lot of inventory. And what that, in, how we calculate inventory is, is the absorption rate on the amount of homes on the market. Mm -hmm. So if right now there is one home on the market and on average we're selling one a month, you could look at this in a neighborhood and a micro market or a big market, right? Just for simple math, that would be a one month inventory situation. Right, because there's every time one comes on, it sells that month, right? New one comes on, it sells that mm -hmm. month. We're always gonna versus if we're selling one a month and there's six on, that'd be a six months of inventory. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of that balance period. Um, so right now we are in that one month or less of inventory, which means it is a massive seller's market. Yes. It is not in favor of the buyers because the buyers don't know when the next thing is gonna come available mm -hmm. and how many people are gonna be interested in it, right? So that's kind of what's tipping the scales. Um, so I think you just said in terms of how to compete, you know, yeah. some, some things that we look at. So a couple of things we look at. If you're a seller right now, and I'm, I'm representing you, we represent a lot of sellers. Um, not as many as we'd like to right now, by the way, yeah. because there's not <laughs> enough of you out there. Um, but what we're talking about oftentimes is price is important. It's very important. And we don't know where the necessarily how high the market can go based on some of the competition. If you've got a great house, you check all the boxes of the market, you know, and so in some of our suburbs for me, it's like, if you're a four plus bedroom, three plus bath, you got a pool, a three car garage, you are literally checking the box of nearly everyone who's looking for a home, right? Yeah. Um, even if it's overkill, if you're hitting the right price point, you're, you're appealing to a lot of people. When that happens, okay? Um, we don't know that we're not going to find that person who's living in a hotel, right? Who's absolutely mm -hmm. desperate. They sold their home in New York city, right? They cleared, you know, uh, they're sitting on cash. They're ready to make a purchase and they are just done. It's not about the value of the home. It's about having a home. We're seeing that right now. So, um, so if you are that person, how do you guarantee win? Well, you got to have a good price off in your offer, right? But here, here's the thing I think is important to remember. Price is one component of the offer. It's literally one line of a 13 page contract. Right. 
So what are the other lines, right? What else is important? The biggest thing for me when I'm helping a seller determine which offer to accept is which one's gonna get us to the closing table, right? Without, without leaving money, a ton of money on the table, right? Which one's gonna get us to the closing table with the least amount of concern or risk of fall through? If you're financing, you've got an appraisal contingency, you've got a long open-ended inspection period, you've got, um, you know, maybe you need help with closing costs, you've got a home to sell, or these are all what we call contingencies. These are all things that make your contract more likely to fall through versus the most, I mean, we, we don't see this, but cash with no inspection period, right? Closing tomorrow. What's the risk of that falling through, right? A bunch of money down at the front. Those are the two massive extremes, right? And so whatever your situation is, we're trying to work our way closer and closer and closer to that level of certainty. Um, because that's what a seller, if they're being advised correctly, should be making a determination on which one is gonna give me the least. Now, cash is not always the most likely to close. It takes yeah. away a contingency, but if, just as an example, we see this all the time, the buyer, never actually came in the home, their agent went and did a virtual showing, um, and they're gonna wait and come down for inspections, right? So it's cash, hey, we'll close quick, we just wanna come down and see it. Okay, you've not seen the home yet. Yeah. I don't, there's not a perfect way to evaluate the risk of fall through, but it's right. a concern compared to other offers potentially, mm -hmm. right? And so we're literally looking at all of these components. Usually, I'll tell you from just my experience this year, um, usually if, let's just say we've got 10 offers on the table. Typically there's two or three that are truly being considered. Right. I mean, it's just generally the case. There's a few that just rise to the surface. When they rise to the surface, um, now we're looking at these really fine details. What's the level of intensity that the buyer needs this home, mm -hmm. right? Like when somebody just really needs or wants that home, I'm like, okay. They're going to get a, they're going to work through issues that may or may not come up yeah. to get to the finish line. Right. Um, we're, so we're seeing that across the board, just little random things that probably wouldn't have been considered in years past mm -hmm. making a difference. Um, people write, you know, letters telling us the story. Uh, we're seeing that a lot. Um, I'll tell you what, it helps knowing someone's like, Hey, I've been looking for a long time. This is where we want to raise our family. Yeah. This is um, this is our situation now. Um, we've literally sold our house. We've got everything in storage. Like we want to be in here before X, Y, Z. Right? Mm -hmm. Those things are meaningful in the grand scheme of getting an offer accepted. The other thing that's important to us, um, and and this again, none of these things are individually deal makers, but all the components help. Um, the other one is getting you know having a, a good rapport or relationship with the agent on the other side of the transaction. Right. So that's one of our, like we have success in certain markets because we've got a really good reputation. We've worked with a lot of the agents in the market. We know a lot of them that are writing offers. And so how do we help? How do we help move the needle for our buyers? Well, Hey, if we've got a good, if, if they expect that our offers are more likely to close, it's going to help move the needle for sure. We're at least going to be in the discussion. I always think starting with the end in mind, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of an old, you know, when, we're, when we look at it from the seller's perspective, it helps change things for the buyer, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there's buyer's offers and I feel bad for the buyers that come in on some of our listings 
that the agent never calls, we never speak with them, they submit the offer, they're riddled with contingencies. Um, they're not prepared, right? They're not prepared, no one's representing them well. It's like, it's like literally, I think of it more like um, putting your, off, your, your job uh, request in a stack of resumes, right? You're applying to a new job, like there's gonna be a stack that's big on the desk. How do you make sure yours is one of the top couple that are considered? Or how do you make sure you have an opportunity to walk in and present, shake somebody's hand yeah. and tell them about yourself, right? The resume is meaningless at that point, yeah. right? You're considered, you know, like, hey, what about that guy? Well, you have none of the qualifications, but I liked him, you know? <laughs> um, that's the kind of stuff we want to bring forward. And so um, all these things matter dramatically. Yeah. So let's say we put in an offer that has, you know, you know, the good qualifications for the house, but the seller picks someone else. Do you suggest putting in a backup offer? Yeah, I mean, if 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 you think that house is the house for you, there's a chance of fall through. The fall through, you know, for a while, I would say, you know, we really weren't seeing much fall through because people were just getting so. Yeah. We've almost gone so far to the point where a lot of buyers and these discussions are helpful to show that, hey, there is hope to do it the right way without having to like completely forget all levels of concern and risk. Right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of buyers have gotten to that point where they've just not had success. And so they're when they get to contract, they're like, I don't even love this house or I don't even love this process anymore. I just kind of wanted to compete That's because there were a lot of other people like it, right? Yeah. If you're writing an offer because you want, you think a lot of other people are going to like the house, <laughs> that's an issue, right? Um, and so we're, we've seen fall through purely because of that. They're acting out in this like, in the chaos and writing an offer and then they, they get it accepted. They have time to think and they back out. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if, if you want to write a backup offer, um, it's the same. We still have to get agreement with the sellers, right? You've still got to um, uh, get everything signed off on. It's merely a, uh, an addendum on the contract that says this is secondary to the primary offer. If that offer falls through, you're immediately going in mm -hmm. to primary position and will be notified. So it's a good situation. You always have the ability when you're back up to revoke your backup. Yeah. You can cancel that at any point, right? So mm -hmm. if another home pops up, cancel it. So my thought is, yeah, you've already done the work. You've already been out to see the house. If, if we're, if we were number two, right. And they just said, Hey, we had essentially full a coin and we picked this one. Go into backup position. Worst case, you would draw it. You've already done, you've already assessed the house. And then the other thing that's interesting I find is when, when you are back up and you do get alerted that the other offer fell through, well, why did it fall through? Did they have an inspection, right? right? You may be able to learn something from that inspection um, and maybe even negotiate potentially, right? If there's enough, if there's something that was not known there. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, a bad idea at all. Yeah. So let's go into negotiations. Once you have the contract under and, you know, you have the contingencies, which could also be negotiation, but you go through the inspection period. Is there anything that you would advise your buyer to negotiate, whether it's submitting an offer or after the inspection period or somewhere along the contract? Yeah. <laughs> I hate this question, but it's important. Um, because a lot of buyers right now, 
with the mentality I just talked about coming they're under contract and they're like, man, I've just given, 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 given. And that's the, so like when, when you feel that way, it feels like, Hey, these things, it's like this house should be perfect. Well, if you want it to be perfect, you probably just need to build. Right. And, 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 and that's going to be a whole different price point process because the construction market right now is as, as, crazy as it's ever been um so here's how i like to frame it and, and and if if all buyers approach things this way it would be be super helpful um if there is something major that was not disclosed and not known by the sellers and you discover it so uh, we can go with the most obvious one like a, if the roof is actually leaking like you get up in the roof, the inspector's like, hey, this roof, we knew it was 10 years old, but there's actually water coming in the roof, right? Okay, fair, fair game for sure. If the, if, if the other simpler option is, hey, um, they've not serviced the AC as well as they should have for this price point of a home, right? That's all relative, right? So to say like, oh, well, they, I'm paying this price, I expect... That the ac has been serviced every six months and mm -hmm. the filters change every month and hey you got a dirty filter the ac is still working fine yeah. and you're just like i need a credit because i didn't expect this right Th those are the emotional decisions that that infiltrate like buyers minds sometimes and they're not they're, they're not helpful right they're not going to get you to the, to the finish line and i will say this if you and, and maybe you do get them to give you a credit because of something minuscule like that um if you do generally speaking that is not your first negotiation or your last negotiation there may be an appraisal issue there may be something else happens or comes up or you need a tweak on your financing uh, you never know until you're sitting at the closing table that there's not going to be something else to negotiate it can be at the closing table we've had stuff happen like an AC go out or a refrigerator go out or something happen at the finish line. When, when we feel that, that they owe us something because we're buying their house and that mentality sets in and then you ask, 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 and they give a little bit, what happens is by the time something really needs to be negotiated, everyone hates each other. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, and people start making irrational decisions. And they'll say, I'll just move back into my house instead, like literally, instead of fixing that, if they're going to do that, and I've given here and here and here, I'll just move back in and I'll go find another buyer, right? That's an irrational mindset. However, it comes because people push people's buttons along the way a lot of times. And you've got to understand sellers in this market, going back to market nowadays is not the worst thing ever because they already have nine people who yeah. said they were interested behind you. And so is it ideal? No. Is it is it something you want to, to really like test somebody on for you know a couple hundred dollar repair? Mm -hmm. Um so my recommendation is not it's 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 not giving in, it's not it's not being uh abused in the situation, but is asking for things that are legitimate. Right. Because legitimate requests have legitimate received generally. Mm -hmm legitimate under, you know, understanding and, and responses. Yeah. So, hey, the roof's an issue. 
insurance will not insure this house. Mm -hmm. Like that's a legitimate issue because even if they say no to me, they're going to have to do it for somebody. Yeah. I mean, or you're dropping your price and selling to a cash buyer and they're going to make a deal on it. Right. So those are things that we can really go after, really attack and tackle. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about um, pulling out from an offer? Like once we've placed an offer, say the seller accepted it, um, and then for some reason a buyer wants to pull out, what does that look like? Say it again. Ask the question again. So I put an offer on the house, yeah. seller accepted it, and for some reason I just say, never mind, don't want it anymore. Yeah. What does that look like? Um, so generally speaking, our contract, if we're writing on an as-is contract, which is the most common, the the inspection period begins as soon as the offer is fully executed. Mm -hmm. So a fully executed offer, um, we start our inspection period, let's say it's a seven-day or 10-day inspection period. The verbiage in there is that buyer has um, had the opportunity to inspect and determined they wish to move forward in buyer sole discretion, mm -hmm. meaning they have no threshold for which they have to find things to cancel. It's literally a get out of jail free opportunity built into the contract. I don't have to inspect. To me, it does, it shows an intent. If you don't inspect and cancel, now situations change too. Yeah. Right. This house, I loved it. However, I found out it was in the wrong school zone. And, right, it could be something like that, or I went and inspected, and it's just going to need a lot more than I expected. Right, mm -hmm. that's that's fine. Um, and so we do see that we do see, you know, hey, you rush, you rush, you rush, and then you start doing a little bit more digging. I know when we're buying, like when we find a house that we like and we're serious about, like we stay up late doing all of our doing all of our uh, due diligence and whatnot. Um, cancel there um, doing all of our doing all of our due diligence on everything we're looking at permits we're looking at these things we're done we're, we're we're looking at the street views and looking up old records on google searching it yeah because we were scared one time uh we found something that was on a, on a house uh house we're living in now where there was like a let's just say a criminal act and it described the house very similar to ours on the street it wasn't ours. We found that out. But it was like, oh, but like yeah. I've actually been under contract on a house that had a something like that that popped up. There were news articles like crazy. The people just said that's too much. I can't. I don't know how I can, you know, work that. So yeah, I mean, I think there's always there's always reasons why yeah. you could ever change your mind. And they're really unfortunately for sellers, no harm or foul yeah. at that point in the process. But I would say. Just to be generous to the sellers, the sooner you make that decision, the better. For yeah. sure. Um, I think my last question is we talked about, you know, putting an offer that you think is worth it, but there's been a lot of offers in today's market that are just way over asking, like 50, 70, 100 over asking. Yeah. So I guess how much is too much? What would you advise your buyers? Like, hey, is that worth it to you? What does that conversation look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I would say I've, I'm, I'm rarely wrong, but I've been surprised a couple of times <laughs> because generally the data supports, you know, some yeah. movement, some upward movement right now, right? So we can look at trajectories. Um, you know, I, I know people get really sensitive to this, especially people that lived through the last housing crisis. Mm -hmm. 
um, because they're like, you know, there was this mentality that, hey, things just are going to keep going up and up and up forever. And that was part of the, the whole um, mortgage-backed security model was they were valued at like this infinite trajectory, which mm -hmm. is not ever legitimate, right? Um, but so there's only been a couple times where I would say somebody valued the house and then paid more because of, because of a situation, right. like dramatically more. Mm -hmm. um, one specific, we were, we went on, this was last year, we went on 699. The highest thing they had sold in the neighborhood was in the mid sixes. And we found this house just got, it, it checked a lot of boxes for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So it just, it, it fit the mold. Um, and so it ended up going to 745, if I'm not mistaken, cash closing in two weeks. Right. Um, and I never would have dreamed that price would have hit. I yeah. thought we would get very close, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that happens. Now, one thing I will say that we've had to refine, like when we're valuing houses is not being so specific to the microcosm of the neighborhood. Right. Because. Let's just use, um, I mean, any we use, we're in downtown right now, we can use any downtown market. Um, it's really about, now there are certain areas that, hey, school zones are driving the decision. Mm -hmm. But if you're in this area and you're seeing, if you're only looking at a small sample size, you're not capturing the whole market growth. Yeah. You gotta start looking and say, hey, where, where would people looking at this house also consider buying? Mm -hmm. So somebody looking downtown, they're probably also gonna consider um, College Park, Colonial Town, maybe Winter Park, yeah. um, right? And so you're seeing like, you see the movement start to stabilize mm -hmm. if you look at it on a grand scale yeah. versus these microcosms, right? And so I think, I think every time there's been, that house is an example, mm -hmm. probably where we, where we missed in guessing that that 745 number might come about was not looking in a couple other, that was an Oviedo, a couple other key Oviedo neighborhoods that would have been in consideration. Gotcha. It was a large neighborhood. So there was a lot of, a lot of data to go on. So we thought we were really moving the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing is when somebody's moving to town and they say, I want to be in Oviedo, Winter Springs, general area, and they're moving here from California or whatever, mm -hmm. They're not saying, I want to be in, in that case, I want to be in Oviedo Forest. Yeah. They're saying, I want to be in Oviedo Winter Springs. And so when you're looking online, I will say this is maybe something as a buyer to, 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 to talk about, right? If you're very specific to a certain neighborhood, you might need to have that broader consideration mm -hmm. um, when you're approaching value. And so we've started doing that more in the last you know, couple of years is looking at the whole market movement because what I need is I need to be able to defend to an appraiser, hey, why would somebody be willing to pay this? Well, I mean, they're paying it over here, they're paying it over here. Mm -hmm. These all go to the same schools or same general school areas. Yeah. Um, you get, you're getting a better neighborhood here. You're getting, a, it's also got a new roof. It's also got, yeah. right? So we can, it's not all about three surrounding comps and yeah. dialing in a, an average. Um, and for a long time, that was very much the approach. So. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more understanding to be had. Um, and now as soon as we get a really good grip on this, it'll change again. Yeah. And then we have to reframe <laughs> and start thinking a different way again. But, um, but for now, I think it's important for us to have these conversations with you as a buyer 
um, so that you can start to see that it's not all, it's not everything that's happening is not all bad. It's not all irrational. There's yeah. a lot of, um, there's a lot of ways to kind of come to an understanding on it, but it's going to be very, very um, situationally dependent. Yeah. So cool. We covered a lot. We did. I feel like there should be a part two on submitting offers. Yeah. Talking about CMAs and kind of going through the offer and contingencies because it's very broad. So yeah. part two. Let me wrap up with uh, <laughs> with some other random stuff. Like I've seen I've seen people just have fun with this process. And so we're totally up for having fun. Like um, an example of having fun would be, hey, we're gonna throw a taco party for you at closing. Goodbye party. We've seen that. Like, hey, I'm gonna roll up. If you accept our offer, I'll roll up a taco truck on your moving day, right? Like, so you know, we don't have to be so serious. I think people do want to, you know, um, enjoy the process again. So let's find where we can where we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Thanks, y'all, for watching.